You turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And we'll read from verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased uh, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and uh, Nicor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaes, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then if you could turn over, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And let's read from verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them uh, also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things." Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word. Now, we've been uh, over the last uh, few months looking at the subject of the church and uh, we've looked at the organization of the church. We've looked at the, uh, the ordinances of the church, uh, the worship of the church. Uh, and we began last week to look at the officers of the church. And we began by looking uh, at the office of elder. And this morning we want to look at the office of deacon. And I want you to notice four things. First of all, the origin of the office the word deacon simply means serve in its common Greek usage and was used of someone who waited at tables. The church took over that term. They baptized it with new meaning, designating it as a parallel office to that of elder. We know that principally from two portions in the New Testament. The key verse that I uh, cited last week, Philippians 1 verse 1, where Paul addresses his letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi uh, together with the overseers and deacons, together with the elders and the deacons. And then in that portion that we just read in 1 Timothy 3, where qualifications are given by the apostle Paul for both elders and deacons. So there were two formally recognized offices within the church, that of elder and deacon, the minister being an elder who has a special calling to preach uh, the word of God. Now, most scholars believe that the origin of the office of deacon is to be found in Acts 6, 
in that other portion that we read together. Although not explicitly referred to as deacons, the word in its noun form appears in verse 1 and in its verb form in verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, to deacon at tables. And it seems that from these humble origins, the appointment evolved into the office that we have described in the later epistles. In the family in which I grew up, uh, we never saw the inside of a doctor's surgery until we were in our 20s. And whenever we had a, a, a problem, whether that was an aching limb or a joint or even a sprained ankle, it was always put down to growing pains. That's just growing pains. And um, the problem in Acts chapter 6 was precipitated by the extraordinary growth of the early church. They were suffering from growing pains. You see that in verse 1. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, and that uh, growth gave rise to a dispute between um, the uh, Hebrew widows and the Hellenist widows. Now, remember, both of these groups were Jews, but some were from a Judean background where they would have spoke Aramaic, Hebrew widows, and others were from um, a, a Greek background or influenced by, by Jews, but they were influenced by uh, Hellenist uh, thought and, uh, and a mindset. And uh, those from the Greek background felt that their widows were being neglected and the Hebrew widows were being favored. Remember, the gospel hadn't yet gone out to the Gentiles, so these were all Jews. The word complaint there in verse 1 uh, is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where the people of Israel grumbled that's the word, against Moses in the wilderness. Now, this grumbling was leading to rivalry and to jealousy. Uh, notice verse 1 speaks of their widows, their widows. It was leading to cliques and divisions, their widows and our widows, them and us, something that is abhorrent uh, not only to the apostles, to the gospel, but to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, the problem was due to an administrative error on the part of the apostles who, looked o who overlooked these, uh, these Greek widows in the daily distribution of food. And those, who, uh, those of us who wrestle with administration take some comfort with the knowledge that the apostles wrestled with it too. Now, the apostles could have increased their involvement with the food distribution, but to do so would have curtailed the time that they could devote to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they command the church to choose out seven men to oversee this issue. And that is the background, the origin of the office. R.H. Carson, the son of Alexander Carson, who founded the Tobermore Church, writes in a little book, he says, the office arose from an urgent necessity. It was this difficulty that led to the more formalized office that, uh, that we read of in 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1, the origin of the office. The second thing I want you to notice are the responsibilities in the office. What did deacons do? What are deacons for? 
when I was coming out this morning, uh, our little granddaughter, uh, Isla, said to me, what are you preaching on this morning? And I said, deacons. And she said, oh. And I said, do you know what a deacon is? And she says, are those those people who don't eat meat? Well, I think most of our deacons are carnivores. But it sort of highlighted to me just perhaps the fact that maybe not everybody uh, understands what a deacon does. Well, a deacon deeks. That's the bottom line. A deacon deeks. Uh, The Greek word for deacon is servant and a deacon serves. The primary responsibility of the deacons is to serve the church practically. Verse 2 of Acts 6, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And the responsibility of serving the tables was entrusted to the deacons, to these seven men. Now you can see also that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 by a process of elimination. If you compare the qualifications uh, of uh, an elder with that of a deacon, you notice that they're very similar. The thing that distinguishes them is that an elder must be able to teach and must take care of God's church. Now, those are the two distinctive qualifications for eldership. He must teach and pastor the people of God. Now, if that is the distinctive function of the eldership, then by a process of elimination, we can deduce that deacons are responsible for the practical affairs of the the church. Elders are responsible for the spiritual affairs of the church, and deacons are responsible for the practical affairs of the church. They were men who were entrusted to administer the practical affairs of the church, including the practical care of individual members. It's interesting that so serious uh, did the apostles regard the appointment of these men that we're, uh, these men that we're told in uh, verse 6, they prayed and laid their hands on them. They were ordained to this office. They were set aside by the apostles after being elected by the church. The laying on of hands didn't convey the Holy Spirit as some teach because they were men already full of the Holy Spirit, but it was symbolic of the confidence that the apostles had in these men. Now, of course, today in a society where the welfare state, at least in theory, is supposed to care for the vulnerable in society, the widow, the orphan, and the unemployed, deacons' responsibilities will lie more uh, in administrating the finances and the upkeep of the building and the provision of, uh, uh, of social activities, finance, fabric, and fellowship. However, issues such as the support practical care of missionaries, the helping of individuals with special needs such as transport and finances all fall into their remit. No individual within a church should feel neglected or feel on their own with a good deacon there to look after their practical needs. And of course, as we notice then in Acts 6, the principle is established that the elders can devote themselves to spiritual priorities, to the ministry of the Word of God, and to prayer. It's not wrong for elders to be involved in practical affairs in the life of the church, nor is it wrong to, uh, for elders, for deacons, to exercise their spiritual gifts within the life of the church, but not by virtue of their office. Uh, 
So the peculiar function of the deacon is to meet the practical needs of the church individually and corporately. The origin of the office, the responsibilities of the office. Thirdly, the qualifications for the office. Now, the New Testament leaves us in no doubt as to the kind of men that are required for this office. In 1 Timothy 3, we have a detailed list of qualifications provided by the apostle for the church. Now, these qualifications can be grouped uh, under four heads. First of all, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, they are to be well-respected men. Deacons, verse 8, likewise must be dignified. The NIV says, men worthy of respect. And the truth of the matter is, it's a combination of both. A person who, in which gravity and dignity are, uh, are combined. One commentator describes it as that which inspires reverence and awe, that he's not a clown, that they are to be respected inside and outside the congregation as serious and sober men. We know that it's to be outside the congregation as well because verse 8 begins with deacons likewise. And if you go up to verse 7, we read of elders that uh, they must be uh, well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of uh, the devil. Deacons likewise. In the same way, deacons are to have this good reputation with outsiders, their colleagues, their families, their neighbors. They are to be well-respected men in the community, dignified men, men worthy of respect. Well-respected men. Secondly, they are to be self-controlled men. They are to be self-controlled in their use of the tongue, in their use of alcohol, and in their use of money. A deacon is to be a man who shows a a degree of self-control in his life. He must, first of all, be um, self-controlled in his use of the tongue. The ESV says, not double tongue. Uh, That word sincere in the NIV literally means not double tongue. The white man may speak with a forked tongue, but not the, the deacon. He is to be one who is in control of his tongue, in control of what he says. The reason for that, of course, is that the tongue reveals the heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, and a man who can't control what he says isn't in control of himself. James says, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, if, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect uh, man. So people who are sarcastic and sharp and cut with their tongues and quarrelsome and awkward and delight to put people down, those people um, disqualify themselves from the office of deacon. He is to be self-controlled. Self-controlled in his use of the tongue and his use of alcohol. Not addicted to much wine. Literally not lingering beside the wine. In days when wine was much more integral to a society which feared the carrying of disease uh, through drinking water, there was a danger that people could very easily become alcohol-dependent. And if what 
professionals tell us today that there are certain individuals with a predisposition to alcohol addiction. The danger of young Christians overindulging in wine was, was very acute in New Testament times. So the deacon is not to have a reputation for alcohol, for lingering at the flagon. He is to be self-controlled in all of his appetites, in his use of the tongue, in his use of alcohol, in his use of money. Not greedy, verse 8, for dishonest gain. Uh, I love the way the authorized version puts it because it has a, a, a ring of uh, terribleness about it. Not greedy, uh, uh, sorry, not greedy, a filthy looker. That's a great term, filthy looker. In his attitude and use of money, there are to be no shades and to be no questions. He is to be free of a mercenary spirit. He can be trusted. Since he's looking after finances, he needs to be trusted with finances. Is he, is he trustworthy in his own financial dealings? Dependable and uh, trustworthy. So he has to be self-controlled in his use of his tongue, in his use of alcohol, in his use of money qualities of discretion and moderation uh, are to mark him out. He is to be a self-controlled man, self-controlled when it comes to all of his natural inclinations and appetites. So he is to be a well-respected man, a self-controlled man. Uh, Thirdly, a domestically proven man. Look at verses 11 and, and 12. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, that deacons each be the husband of but one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, there is a difference uh, of opinion when it comes to verse 11 and how verse 11 should be translated. Some feel that it should be translated as wives, but it's just uh, the, uh, the word for female, but that's how the ESV, the AV, and the NIV translated. Others, including very respected commentators like William Henriksen, feel that verse 11 refers not to wise, but um, auxiliary female workers within in the church, people who, uh, women who serve the church in this practical way. Now, whatever the case, and we'll come back to that at a later date, Verse 12 makes it clear that a man's family is to have a bearing on his election. He is to have a stable marriage, the husband of one wife, and he must be able to manage and control his own children. That does not, I think, mean that his children necessarily have to be believers, because remember, salvation is the divine prerogative of God. But are his children obedient? controlled and respectful? Is his wife a godly girl? Can she help him spiritually? Is she spiritually minded? His family are to be taken into account in his election. The reason for that examination of his domestic life is found back in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 3 when we're told about elders, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The family and family responsibility are the training ground for exercising authority in the church. If he can't look after his family, how will he look after the church? So think of the biblical requirements uh, for a husband. Ephesians 5, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Does he have a a love that parallels Christ's love to his people? Is he he self-sacrificing when he comes to his wife? Is he exclusive when he comes to his wife? Is he he a flirt and always going around the other women of the congregation and and, and, uh, building up a rapport with them? Or is he a one-woman man? Think of the requirements of wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Has he a submissive wife? Uh, Has she a submissive disposition, accepting his headship and leadership? Think of the requirements of fathers. Bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Is he faithful in teaching his children? Does he open his Bible and read to his children? And Does he pray with his children? Then of the requirements of children, Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, obey your parents in the Lord. Do his children run wild? Are they allowed to do whatever they want? Are they the, the manipulators and the movers when it comes to the family rather than the father? Look at his family. That's what Paul is telling us here in 1 Timothy 3. He must be a man who has proven himself domestically. A well-respected man, a self-controlled man, a domestically proven man, a spiritually gifted man. Look at verses 9 and 10. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, although the deacon is not necessarily responsible for the spiritual life of the church, that does not mean that he can be uh, spiritually illiterate or spiritually impoverished. Not, Not at all. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He must, says the NIV, hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. He must know his ABCs doctrinally. He must be grounded in the gospel. He must have a clear understanding of the gospel. He must know what it needs means to be, to be saved and come to a, a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must have a firm grasp of doctrine and uh, be um, uh, grounded in the faith. He has to have a clear conscience before God. In other words, he keeps short accounts with God. He is spiritually alive and in touch with God, one who loves his Savior and sees his service to the Savior as a delight rather than a burden. In that regard, they are first to prove themselves in the church, verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The work that they do now the responsibility that they have now, the uh, commitment that they show now to the organizations that they're involved in. Uh, Are they proving faithful there? Test them, says Paul, before you let them serve. So deacons must be, uh, a deacon must be a well-respected man, uh, one who has a good testimony, a, a self-controlled man, a man who is in control of himself, whether it be his tongue, his appetites, or his money, a domestically proven man, one who is biblically, uh, has a biblically ordered family, 
and take seriously his role as a husband and a father, a spiritually gifted man, one who knows his doctrine and keeps a clear conscience before God and has proved himself within the church. Think of those men that they appointed in Acts chapter 6. They were men of honest report. They were good men. They were men full of the Holy Spirit. They were godly men. And they were full of wisdom. They were gifted men. High standards for an office that has been trivialized by today's church. The origin of the office, the responsibilities in the office, the qualifications for the office, and lastly, the blessings from the office. Blessings directly associated with the appointment of deacons are evidenced in Scripture. Blessings corporately for the church and individually for the deacon. Let's look at the blessing corporately for the church there in Acts 6 and and look at verse 7. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, do you notice that little word, and, and? That's a connecting word. The the NIV translates that as, so, so the word of God spread, and the word of God continued to increase. The the reason for the rapid expansion uh, of the gospel, even into priestly families, was due to the appointment of these deacons. That makes sense, doesn't it? The church will never multiply while its teachers neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. But when they are freed up to devote themselves to that task, the word of God is increased. And so the appointment of good godly deacons to oversee the practical affairs of the church reaped uh, spiritual blessings for the whole church. And a church that is blessed with such men who take seriously their responsibility is indeed greatly blessed. The deacons, though not directly responsible for the spiritual life of the church, can be a means of great blessing to the spiritual life of the church. And that's why we should pray for our deacons. And we should bring them before the Lord. And we should, when it comes to the election of deacons, think very carefully about their appointment. Because although their work is is practical, it has spiritual consequences. And those deacons can be the means of a great blessing, of great, can bring great blessing to the church. Blessing corporately for the church. There in Acts 6, the word of God spread. Then look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 13. I think this is is remarkable. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those who serve well gain an excellent um, standing, says the NIV, a good standing, says the ESV. The, the word is used of a step or a stair, um, a, a roll or a rank. In other words, before God, in the eyes of the church, uh, the diligent deacon increases his standing. 
The members see his work and they esteem him highly for his work's sake. And his influence then increases within the congregation. It gives him a chance to commend himself on a, a deeper, in a deeper way and on a deeper level to the church. It's interesting in Acts 6, two of those appointed, Stephen and Philip, go on to preach, to preach the word. Effectively, Stephen in the presence of a young man called Saul and Philip with great effect in Samaria. They, they proved themselves in that office of deacon and they went on to do greater things. Now, of course, the offices of elder and deacon are different. And it's wrong to think in terms of promotion from one office uh, to, the, to the other. But it is nevertheless true that often elders are recruited from the deacons because they have proved themselves faithful in that particular role. So that's the first um, individual blessing. They, they gain a good standing. But the second is also there in verse uh, 13. They gain great confidence. The authorized version says great boldness. The, um, uh, the NIV says great assurance. Now, I'm sure all of us struggle with assurance at times. We wonder if the root of the matter is within us and we examine our hearts in the, the light of the Word of God to make our calling and election sure. But here's, here's a wonderful promise that those who serve well as deacons gain great confidence in the faith, great assurance in the faith that there is a blessing for the individual that serves. You see, it's the standing pool that stagnates with uh, moss and algae at the running stream that filters as it flows. And those who occupy the office and exercise their responsibilities within the office, they are, are granted an assurance in their faith through that office. And that's a great thing. And that's not something to be trivialized I remember a deacon uh, on one occasion, or a potential deacon, said to me, uh, what's in it for me? You know, am I just there to serve? What's, what's in it for me? Well, here's what's in it for you. That if you serve well as a deacon, you gain great assurance in your faith, great boldness, that somehow it strengthens your faith and enables you then to proclaim that faith more effectively and directly to others. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The origin of the uh, office, the, the reason... Uh, that we have deacons is because of that crisis in Acts chapter 6 where widows were being neglected. The responsibility uh, in the office to look after the practical affairs of the church. The qualifications for the office, they are to be well-respected men, self-controlled men, domestically proven men. And the blessings from the office, corporately, the word of God spread and individually they gain an excellent standing and great boldness or great assurance in the faith.
Amen.